nothing worse than feeling alone or being lonely. And I don't know anybody that likes that feeling. But it's actually possible to actually be alone in a crowd. Uh, how many of you have been to Six Flags or Disney World or anything like that? Yeah. See, I, believe it or not, I don't really like crowds too much. I don't like being around people that I don't really know. And there's that really awkwardness. You know, usually if you're crammed in line at Disney World, it doesn't matter if there's like 2,000 people in the park. Somehow, you always run into the same folks. Um, it's like it's only that sweaty guy that bumps into you and always greases your shoulder or that uh, six-year-old that always winds up in the same line and just screaming their head off and uh, somehow she always winds up next to me and I just feel really awkward um, around people I don't know. But you know, it's, it, the, the cliche is that but we're surrounded by people but yet we feel completely alone. And we're going to talk a little bit this morning about a concept of Although we're surrounded by a crowd, is it possible for us to be feeling alone, left out, not part of a community? We're going to be talking in particular on the subject that it takes a village to raise a child. Now, how many grew up in like a small neighborhood, small town, uh, anything like that? Okay, I did too. The cool thing about a village is a tight-knit group. Uh, as, as I was growing up, I can remember running yard to yard, and there's always this one lady across the street who always seemed to know everything that was going on in the neighborhood. And somehow I could never get away with anything because it always got back to my parents. Well, the thing about a village is it's tight-knit. Just like our neighborhood was tight-knit, I'm sure many of you have uh, the same type of environment. Uh, where it's like the neighbors were always in your business, and you're like, man, I, I can't go anywhere without being seen. But that's not always a bad thing. And we're going to be talking about the village principle a little bit today. But why a village? Why not a town? Why not a city? Why not a school? Why not a student ministry? What does it take to raise our kids from birth into Christian mature adulthood? But first, we're going to see the original instructions. So if you could please go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we're going to be speaking out of this passage today. This is going to be our blueprint for determining what it takes to be a village and to raise our children from birth into Christian mature adulthood. Verse simply says, Deuteronomy 6, this is chapter, or excuse me, chapter 6, verse 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Actually, can we, can we do this? Can we just all stand up as we read this? So. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as a symbol on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your door frames, your houses, and on your gates. Thank you. Be seated. This passage is often referred to in Orthodox Judaism as the Shema. And I believe the pronunciation is correct on that. The Shema uh, actually only contains Deuteronomy 6.4, which is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Why is this important? Because this passage, as our blueprint, as our blueprint contains that first word, which is Shema. And in the Hebrew, that contains not only that we're hearing, but we're actually obeying. So it's actually a twofold word. So before, uh, before the rest of the verses are given, the first word is Shema, Israel. Shema, listen and obey on these instructions. Everything follows that is the blueprint. 
And oftentimes in Orthodox Judaism, it was the father's responsibility to actually instruct his wife and instruct his children. But the one thing that I want to take recognition in, uh, of this passage is not only is it directed at parents and raising their children, but Israel was actually the entire congregation. This was addressed to all Israel, to the nation. Everyone within earshot now is held accountable to raising uh, these kids in the way of God. So, you're saying, well, that's great, but that's just uh, that's Old Testament. Well, let's dig a little deeper, because this principle and these verses are actually referenced by Jesus himself in Mark 12, 29. The Pharisees come to Jesus, I'll give you a little background on this, and they say, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers simply out of Mark 12, 29, he says this, the most important commandment is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, uh, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. Now, the interesting thing about this is Jesus was answering as, you guys should already know this. Uh, you are teachers of the law yourselves. And you come to me and ask me what the great, greatest commandment is. This, guys, this is a no-brainer. He begins with the Shema. The reason this is important is because this was a declaration for Jews that there is only one God. This was a monotheistic hill to die on in a culture that was polluted with polytheism. There is one God, Hero Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. And then continues to say, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Then, he all, then Jesus also adds, and love your neighbor as yourself. So this is an Old Testament principle that, that actually parallels in both covenants. So the blueprint remained the same as time changed. So the, therefore we need to take note that the message contained in these verses are just as applicable today as they were then. So, what's happened? Let's see if Israel actually followed those commandments. If you can scan to, uh, if you can go ahead to Judges 2, we're kind of skipping some time here. Moses received the law. After Moses died, Joshua would actually be God's man to lead Israel into the promised land. All right, well, let's see. Joshua received the same word, the same law, but let's see what happens. Uh, we're going to fast forward here. What happens to Israel? The, in Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 7, it says, The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all great things the Lord had done for Israel. All right, sounds great. So Joshua and the elders after him, they set the example. They set the standard. And apparently everyone was obedient to God. Let's see what happens after this, that generation passes. Uh, if you will scan ahead of chapter, or excuse me, verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And all the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the, the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord God, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. Now, I find that interesting because they still have the same law, the same blueprint. But what happened? How could there be a generation that arose that did not know the Lord their God? If this was something that they instructed, that they taught, and they modeled daily, how can there be a generation that rose that did not know what God had done for this nation? See, Israel failed at this point to pass down what was modeled, what has been taught, what was God's law, what was God's word. They didn't live it out, and the next generation did not know the Lord their God. Israel failed. And the reality is, so are we. 
If you don't believe me, let's look at some stats real quick. First, at first appearance, everything looks good. 86% of teenagers, this is actually Barner Research, 86% of teenagers polled said that they believe in God. Great, we're doing an awesome job. At first glance, everything looks good. But let's look a little deeper at the God that they supposedly know. First of all, two-thirds of the teens polled said that Satan is merely a symbol of evil and not real. Okay, 63% say that Muslims, Buddhists, Christians, and Jews all pray to the same God but use different names. Next will be simply that 53%, excuse me, 6 out of 10 argue that a person can earn salvation by good deeds. And the other 53% say that Jesus actually committed sins while here on earth. Church, do we have any doctrinal problems? Absolutely. In reality, out of all the teenagers polled in this uh, study by Barner Research, only 4% actually held to doctrinal values which could actually be considered evangelical Christianity. What makes that so much more staggering and so much worse is that two out of the three teenagers that were polled would say that they have learned, they are very familiar with all values, principles, and everything uh, that Christianity has to offer. The bottom line is our teenagers today think that they have absorbed everything that has to do with Christianity, but yet 93% of all churches nationwide are struggling to hold on to 10th through 12th graders. The statistic is not after they graduate college. Pretty much when they get a driver's license, they're out the door. Why? It's because we have failed. We have not followed the blueprint that we've been given. We have not given the instructions. Now. Guys, I'm going to talk to you for a second. I know all of us, uh, you know, if you buy something new, you purchase something, usually it comes with instruction manual, right? Or um, if you're building a home for, for you guys that are home builders, you've got to have a blueprint, right? You don't just build a house without one of those two things. Well, to help illustrate that, uh, I guess a couple years back, Amanda and I had gone down to Foley when we were living in Daphne to the uh, outlets. And ladies, I know you guys know where that is. So somebody over there is getting excited about it. So... So these Foley outlets, uh, they have all kinds of stores down there, and they have this Disney store. So we decided that we're going to go in and get the girls these little pink princess scooters. And actually one was for me, but not, not, not really. Um, so we have these little pink princess scooters. I think it's, hey, I'm fully capable. I'm fully capable of putting a pink princess scooter together, right? Absolutely. So I don't need the instruction manual. I mean, this, there's only a few pieces that go to this thing. Right. So... I put these two scooters together, and uh, I'm like, man, they didn't, they didn't give me enough pieces in this box. Something's not right. That, you know, of course, it's somebody else's fault. The manufacturer left something out, right? No. Mackenzie's scooter kind of veers hard right when it's driven, and Abigail's won't even stand up by itself. <laughs> I hope that helps illustrate that we all need instructions. Israel didn't follow the instructions that were given to them. Now, let's break down those instructions a little bit because we realize first, the first part is just recognizing that we have failed. But that's okay because it's not too late. But one thing that we have to recognize is why have we failed? First of all, it's because we've become reactive consumers and not proactive carriers of faith. And think about that for a moment. What does a consumer do? A consumer takes... They're always waiting to be sold on something, the next big, best thing. 
Uh, a reactive consumer, consumer simply does this. Invite me. Uh, enroll me. Do something that sell me on what you got. Because it's all about me. So show me what I can get out of this. Okay? A proactive carrier is simply someone that actually forges Christian discipline in the crucible of pain. A proactive carrier is someone that doesn't need to just be told, but they act upon what they hear. They don't need someone to hold their hand and guide them through. A proactive carrier is someone that takes initiative. A proactive carrier is a role model. But I'm afraid that in this day and time, many of us become reactive consumers because much of our worship and much about everything that we have is self-centered and it's all about us. And the next generation is missing out because they don't have an extended Christian family that's modeling Christian principles. Is it any wonder that teens drop out long before they graduate? We have taught our next generation nothing about endurance, nothing about commitment. For example, if a marriage gets strained, we just bail. When a job gets tough, we quit. And when the tough gets going, so do we. And is it no wonder that more than 80% of all church growth nationwide is transfer growth? The reason being is because the Western church doesn't like to be uncomfortable. If we don't hear something that we like in the gospel, we simply go somewhere else. We're not committed. The early church thrived on persecution. And I dare say that the Western church doesn't have to be persecuted because we tear ourselves apart from within with complacency and self-centeredness. And I'm not here to beat you up this morning, but we have to heed the warning, the wake-up call. There's joy in the suffering that comes from serving Jesus Christ. For example, this, this week, as you can see, Amanda is in service with us this morning, and that is a huge answer to prayer. But let me give you an example of what it takes to uh, follow Christ. It's not always easy. Through the situation uh, with Amanda on bed rest, I got to learn kind of how selfish I really am. And there's nothing fun about that. You know, I took all the responsibilities of taking care of the house and the kids. And there's often times when I just wanted to sit there and just be like, oh, my goodness, I can't do it anymore. And I don't want to make this analogy about us, but it's usually in those or about me or Amanda. But what happens is when we get put in a position of trials and tribulations, it exposes us for who we really are. Self-centered and selfish. It's ugly. But you know what? It's through that drawing out process, that drawing out into light, that we can be exposed to who Christ is. And we can begin to model what it's like to be a Christ follower. I can say that God has been working with me in particular on just being selfish. Just wanting to do what I want to do. And that's not what it's about. But oftentimes in our churches... That's exactly what it's all about. We want to make it about us. We want to be a crowd. You know, Jesus had crowds that followed him everywhere he went. But they weren't considered disciples. Think about that for a minute. Jesus was always surrounded by people. But they were not considered his disciples. They were not considered followers of the way. So I ask you, church, what are you afraid of? Me? My My biggest fear is the fear of failure. And that's why it was so easy to do that video last week. I'm afraid to fail. But here's the good news. We already recognize that we have. So where do we go from here? Parents, if I could address you for just one second. I want to give you some hope. And I want to give you just some information and statistics that can hopefully help. And then we're going to look at what it takes to actually be a village. Parents, parents, many of you are under the influence that your children's peers have much more influence than you do. 
And that's simply not true. Peer influence is actually short-lived. Uh, peer influence will only influence dress, entertainment, music, iPods, movies, mostly all that kind of stuff. Parents, you only forfeit your right to have influence on your child's beliefs and values when you completely neglect it. There's no greater earthly influence and authority that a child has than that of their parents. Research simply shows this, and the same research that provided the statistics, that parents who simply talk about their faith in their homes and actually serve alongside of their children increase, and actually they increase by double and sometimes triple the chances of a child actually living out their faith as adults. So parents, stay encouraged, and you're not in this alone. I hope you take encouragement in God's word itself in Proverbs 22.6. It says, train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. I'd like to next address our extended Christian family. Now you're thinking, what does that mean? Simply this, not all of our teenagers, not all of our children have the benefit of having a parent that is involved in their life, and much less their spiritual life sometimes. I can think of three incidents this year alone where students have actually been banned from coming to our student ministry because church is something that they enjoy. They were put on restriction from coming to church. The church is the only remaining institution that has a spiritual message and a physical presence to instill students with Christian values. Every teenager needs adult influence. Even though if they may not act like it, even may that they may rebel against it, they will not forget it. Peer influence is important, and it's vital that they have that connection, but adults' influence is needed. Let's look at Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the rates set before us. Before this passage... Anytime you see a therefore in scripture, you have to back up. Before this passage is actually Hebrews chapter 11. Well, duh, no brainer. However, this is what we also call the hall of faith. This, this contains people of Moses, uh, who people who have actually lived out their faith. They've modeled what it takes to follow God. So, I ask you, extended Christian family, will you be a part of this cloud of witnesses? This cloud of witnesses that models faith to the next generation, who takes up the mantle and who not only loves God in talk, but loves God in deed and action. Let me give you a quick illustration about a cloud of witnesses. When we were in Nashville this summer at the junior high mission trip, um, on Thursday night, this ministry always does a dinner for the homeless. And what they do, they, I think they call it a love line. So if this was our, our entryway, the volunteers would line up on this side and this side. And this would be the love line. And what they do, they wait for the homeless people to come in. And as soon as those, as those men and women come in, they just begin to applaud and cheer and love them and just celebrate who they are. And so it's really just an awesome thing because those people, are, they get psyched. You would think they're walking into the Super Bowl. But you know what? If our teenagers, after they exit Kids Crew, if they've got a cloud of witnesses that are there cheering them on and loving them and modeling Christ for them, how can we fail? Another statistic is that simply 90% of the kids that were actually stuck with their faith after college, or excuse me, after high school, had a minimum of six different adult mentors. Your role is extremely important. So just because you don't have a parent of a teenager, you're still involved. So what does it take to be a village? I'll give you three points on what it takes to be a village. First, put love into action. We've already covered this, but let me go back to this verse in Deuteronomy. 
You shall love the Lord your God with your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Okay? It's one thing to say that you love in word, but it's another thing to do so in deed and action. In 1 John uh, chapter 3, verse 18, it says, Dear children, let us not love with words and tongue, but with actions and truth. So basically, you've got you to gotta model it. You can't just say that you love God. Where's your priority and how do you show that? It could be, and I'm not talking about that you have to do any type of expository and preaching with your kids. Let's be practical here. If God's a priority in your life, just show up to church on time. Show them that you care. Have conversations in your home about your faith. It's simple. Show your children that you love someone else by serving them. Second, practice what you preach. This should be a no-brainer, but in verse 6, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Simply that, meditate on the word day and night. Third, every moment is a teachable moment. That's simple. Uh, yesterday, Chuck Kiefer had actually invited the students to come do a, a service project uh, with the adults. It was so awesome. He asked us that last week, and it really just ties into where we're going this morning. Because here's a way that you can model Christ to the next generation. If you're not a teacher, don't worry. Just take what you do and do it to the glory of God. But see, yeah, it slowed down production sometimes when, when Chuck had to step back and let one of the students hammer a nail, but what was he showing them? He was showing them what the love of Christ is all about. Every moment's a teachable moment. Seize those teachable moments. Thrive on those teachable moments. If, you, if your son or daughter wants to sit and watch the sunset, use that to talk about creation. Extended Christian family. Maybe you've got a really neat job and a ministry in yourself because uh, you, can, you work maybe at a law firm. Maybe you work uh, in law enforcement. Use that. Use that to model Christ in the next generation. We're going to do an exercise that's going to help illustrate this principle that it takes a village to raise a child. That it takes Christian community to develop Christian maturity. And what we're going to do is this, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to come up, you're going to come up and you're going to put your hands in the paint pan, you're going to put your hand on the canvas anywhere you'd like, and then you're just going to wash your hand off and return to your seat. Okay, and I will explain more about the reasoning after we, we finish this, but we're going to do this, this these two sections are going to come to this, uh, this station here. We're going to start with the back rows, and you guys, the back rows, you'll actually just follow and come this way, begin here with Josh Gassaway, and come down the line and go back to your seat. We're going to go back rows first. These two sections, same thing. You're going to come out this way, around, put your hand in the paint and on the canvas. Now, this one is very important, so please listen. If you're the age 0 to 19, please use the red paint. 0 to 19, red paint. 0 to 19. Red paint. If you're 20 to 39, please use the yellow paint. 20 to 39, please use the yellow paint. Okay? If you're 40 and above, use any paint you want. No, just kidding. <laughs> if you're 40 and above, please use the uh, blue paint. Um, and I will uh, close this out after we finish this exercise. This is kind of a vital uh, part of our visual. So, you could bear with us as we uh, begin.